So here we are. Good episode, I think. Enjoyable episode. Kind of a weird episode. One of the things that I've said more than once in my life is that you've got comedy, and then you've got serious, and then you've got kind of the weird middle ground in between. And while it's difficult to do comedy, and it's difficult to do serious, getting that in-between ground is really hard. Now, I... <laughs> David Livingston was the director in this episode, and I have spoken his praise many times because he's a fantastic director, and it continues to show. But I bring this up because Livingston himself initially tried to direct this as a serious work, and then over time shifted his opinion to directing it as more of a comedic work. He was, for example, pretty much the big force behind the reveal scene, which is all done without dialogue, and then has Quark literally faint in the background. So, you can kind of see the, the, the change of tone throughout. I find it a shame, though, because we have the potential for several serious issues to be discussed here. We've got gender issues, which, I'm, by the way, I'm not even touching. Um, we've got an individual who is seeking their own path, a very common story trope. Um, we've got financial expansion into the Gamma Quadrant. And there's hints of some actual multi-system power, a regular recurring force in the Gamma Quadrant. And this is our first hints of that. We've got a lot of potentially serious elements here. Uh, but then comedy, you know. So it's just kind of weird the way it comes off. I do kind of like how, and I know this is going to sound weird, understated the Dozai are. Because, or is it the Dozi? Dozi or Dozai? God, I just watched this episode. The red-faced people. No, don't do that. Because um, pretty much from the first presentation of seeing them, I was like, okay, I, I see where this is going. And you can kind of get a hint for how they work. And I do like that without ever actually stating it, Quark picks up on how they work too and then is able to actually negotiate with them. Now, to explain what I mean by that, and I, I've brought this up so many times over in Voyager, what I despise, it's probably one of my biggest peeves when it comes to any work of fiction, is when the fiction sits down and says... So you see the Dozai here, they're very aggressive. So they are aggressive in how they interact with other people and themselves. So if you, you cow down to their demands, they immediately presume that you are not worth dealing with. It's only when you show what kind of strength of force you have that they're willing to deal with you. Now that's actually a fairly common character trait. In fact, uh, it is their hat, and they are not the first species to have that hat in Star Trek. But... They don't do that. They don't sit down and explain that to you. They let you pick that up. Now, they are a bit overt about it, but I still like the fact that they don't bother to t pause the episode effectively, turn to the camera and be like, all right, so here's how these guys work, you know. Because that's what other episodes of Trek can and have done, is, is basically have one of the characters say, you know, in a briefing, sir, the Dozai are such and such and such and such. We don't need that as audience. We're not stupid. I did like the way the episode was constructed. It's, this is probably, if I was actually doing a negative 10 to 10 scale, this would probably end up somewhere around, say, about four, three or four on that list. Not exactly phenomenal, but certainly a net positive. Kind of average-ish, right? Because the construction of the plot in the episode makes sense and uses each of the characters well, except for the fact that in several cases it feels like they just kind of had to do something with this, so Kira just kind of gets involved when otherwise she wouldn't need to be. Like, her scenes felt almost completely superfluous. 
and ultimately don't really serve much purpose, in my opinion, of course. Except for one, which I'll talk about later. There's also the fact that this was actually originally a TNG episode, and in fact, Pell would originally be, you know, getting along with Riker instead of Quark, and it would be Crusher who would, Beverly Crusher, who figured it out because she's a doctor, and then be like, oh, hey, in place of, uh, in, oh my god, I can't think of her name, was it in place of Dax, <laughs> in place of Jadzia. Now, <clears throat> next thing I want to mention really quick is Tongo. Uh, first of all, I'd love... Tongo looks a lot more interesting of a game than Dabo. I've already mentioned that Dabo is basically roulette, right? It's just, yep, okay. STO actually made rules for Dabo, but for the most part, it's just kind of luck. Yay. Uh, Tongo actually feels like a real game. And in fact, I tend to like card games like that, especially that kind of rotating action sort of card game. So that feels kind of fun. I like that. So that was a good introduction, and it adds just, it, it does what DS9 does best. It adds just a little layer of believability and world building in what is effectively an unrelated episode. <laughs> um, I also like how one of the first things that they establish in the, in the teaser is that Pell is very quick thinking and very intelligent. In fact, the entire episode emphasizes how Pell is very smart and more than capable of keeping up with those around her and basically, not physically, but metaphorically dancing circles around everyone else. The only one who's capable of keeping up with her at all in improv is Cork. I'll talk more about that later. And, of course, Zek is back. Let me just go ahead and say that I love the number of recurring guest stars we have in DS9. If anything, I wish we had more, but I do love how many we get. I think it's one of the greatest strengths of the show. And again, it's one of the advantages of setting your show on a spot that effectively doesn't move. It's more likely to get the same people coming through regularly. Thus, it kind of grows naturally from it. I'm one of those people who wishes we had more Barkley over in TNG and in Voyager. And of course, as I'll be discussing sometime this month, I forget exactly when it happens, I would love you know, to have Moriarty back on TNG more. So seeing Zek back was pretty much, yeah, awesome. It's worth noting this is, if you remember, my second time through the show because I hadn't, my first time through, I hadn't come back to the show yet. Don't worry, I'll point out the episode when we get there. I know the exact episode. So, Zek is exactly what he should be, and huge credit to the actor. Great guest star. Um, he is comical, he is disgusting, he is very smart, and he plans long term. He's the kind of person who would probably be... I'm going to use a weird exa example here. I think he'd be good at chess, regular chess. Not timed chess, not t you know speed chess. Just really sitting there and thinking out all of his moves in advance. His meeting with, uh, with Cisco and with Kira is an excellent example of this. First of all, he obviously is like, <laughs> and he's really gross, and he blows his nose, and he's all that. And I don't know how much of this is deliberate or not, but I get the very strong impression that he's playing up his, for lack of a better term, Ferenginess to put everyone else to think of him as just some gross old man. But we've already seen that Zek's brain works very well in very long term. He already had all of that, I forget what it's called, the fertilizer that Bejor could really, really use. He had already acquired it before he even came here. But he doesn't bring that up. He doesn't lead with that. Instead, 
he just kind of waits to see if they're going to be working any deals and maybe, and oh, you want me to get off the station? Well, since you're at the point of threatening me, I'll go ahead and bring out my Trump card now. But he doesn't even fully bring it up. First thing he does is he brings it up and they're like, oh, okay, they acquiesce. Excellent. We'll give it to you for 25%. Now, this is funny. Because I've heard some people look at this scene and think that Zek is just being a typical Ferengi, but I don't think that's true at all. I think Zek is smart. Now, I may be giving him too much credit, but think of it this way. Zek was willing to give them it. And remember, there was no strings attached. Like, when I first saw Kira be like, oh, yes, thank you very much, I was expecting her to be there to say, yeah, and by the way, you poisoned it, or it's low-grade or something, but no. No, he just gave Bajor tons of stuff. That was always something he was prepared to do. Because remember, from a truly intelligent Ferengi mind, it's all about transactions, okay? It's not just about greed and profit. That's what an idiot Ferengi will do, or a stupid Sith. I mean, stupid Ferengi will do. Actually, it's really funny how many similarities there are between Ferengi and Sith, if you really think about it. Just replace power with money, and it's kind of one-to-one. Because we have stupid Sith, stupid Ferengi, and then we have smart Sith and smart Ferengi. And the contrast is stark between the two. He's willing to give this to Bejor because what he gets out of it is worth more than that. This is simply part of another transaction for him. He is still profiting off of this. So instead he says, don't worry, I'll give it to you at, at 25%. I thought you said it'd be a gift. Oh, well, if you're going to be so wonderful, we'll give it to you wholesale. He says that because even though he is prepared to give it away as a gift and ready to do so financially, he would still rather get some money out of that, wouldn't he? That would still be preferable. So he pushes the envelope. Cisco pushes back, so he says, okay, and rather amiably agrees to just give it away, like he originally planned. I like Zek, if it's not obvious. So, <clears throat> then we move on to, where am I? I'm sorry, let me look at my notes here. Um, I don't actually have a lot to say in the middle part of this episode. It was just a lot of good character stuff that just kind of played out, and I don't have much to add to it, so this is going to be a pretty short episode. Um, I do find it interesting how Pell produces the idea of negative reinforcement for customer service rather than positive reinforcement. Let me explain what I mean by that a little bit. If Pell, or any Frank, you know, let's say you own a bar, you sell drinks, and you come across a substance that basically... Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's basically a form of a harmless drug. It, it stimulates some of the pleasure centers of the brain, or it automatically hits olfactory senses so that basically whatever you're drinking tastes better, you know, something like that, right? You with me? That would be positive reinforcement. You put those things out, people have them, they enjoy the drinks more, they get more drinks. Instead, what is produced is negative reinforcement. By giving them something that they'll munch on that deliberately worsens them, they have to then accommodate that negativity with taking the additional drink. Now, it's worth noting that while that is still a negative reinforcement, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it does give an insight in how Ferengi mindset tends to work, even from a smart Ferengi like Pell, because she is definitely one of the smart... Oh, yeah, but I'm just going to consistently refer to her as she... Um, Anywho, <clears throat> so 13 minutes and 29 seconds is when we have the reveal. Now, originally the reveal was a lot simpler. Originally, Pal just took off the lobes and relaxed, and I was like, phew. Now, 
that would make sense to anybody who is a, a significant fan of Star Trek. Someone who knows that Ferengi females have noticeably lar smaller, excuse me, lobes than Ferengi males. It's part of their sexual dimorphism. That's one of the biggest differences and the most obvious one. So anybody who knew that would pick up on that. But how many people know that? Livingston, David Livingston, the director I mentioned earlier, argued stridently that they needed to basically put on a mammary chest thing under her, under her shirt to emphasize her boobs. Now, I know that sounds crass to say it that way, but he did it for a very smart reason. Because the important thing, and I agree with his reasoning on this, the important thing, at least for that initial reveal, is for that to have any strength, the audience has to be on board. And they have to have an immediate visual indicator, because there's no dialogue on the scene, to present the idea that this is a female. Now, there's a lot of other ways they could have gone with that, which arguably would have been actually bad. You know, just lipstick, maybe, or, or start going, la, 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 you know, something like that. And that might have been a little bit too much. But instead, all they do is put this little thing under her shirt so that when she takes the vest off, which is neatly covering this, we instantly know that she's a she. And then we can then cognate what's going on with the lobes in case we didn't already know that this is her hiding as a female. And it's just, oh, oh. And this is where the episode probably is a little bit too blunt, but I'm still okay with it because, again, not everyone is going to understand Ferengi approach to women, which, again, I'm not even touching. Let's, let's not even get into that. I, I don't even want to touch that mess. Just leave it over there. Um... So that's why, at the beginning of the episode, in the teaser, there's like two minutes, it's actually, actually closer to 90 seconds, of them basically, ah, females are terrible, females are terrible, <laughs> and females with clothes, but they're terrible, you know. Is that how, and then there's actually a line, it's literally exposition, but it's slid under the door wonderfully, where Dax turns to him and says, Do you, is that how you really want me? Submissive and naked? And in that, even if you aren't a fan of Star Trek, aren't a fan of Deep Space Nine, or even maybe just clicked over to this for the first time, and this is the first Star Trek show you've ever seen, bam, we understand why Pell being a she is significant. And that's why I'm okay with that kind of otherwise overt exposition at the beginning of the episode. Now, the episode does one other thing, and I just want to comment on this because I don't think I ever noticed this before, but I think it's kind of cool. Dax tells Pell, you're in love with him. And, you know, that's nice. And she deduces that quickly and easily. Then Pell reveals she's a woman, and Dax is surprised. I like that. That is a nice touch. And, in fact, if you're paying attention, Quark doesn't act particularly weirded out by anything about the fact that Pell, who, remember, at this point, he thinks is a guy, is coming on to him and kissed him. And Quark's just like, nope, nope. Not because he's grossed out, and not because he's a guy, because he just wants to go on with the business relationship, because he's trying to deal with this. It's a nice little touch, because Quark doesn't find out until later, and then he's like, oh my gosh. And of course, Quark does have an attraction to Pell, too. You see where I'm going with this? It's very subtle, and I think that's one of the things I like about it, because it's presented as if it's completely normal and ordinary, which is how I think that kind of thing should be presented, in my opinion, like not make a big deal out of it, in other words. So forgive me for making a big deal about it. I just wanted to point it out. So then Odo is like, I wouldn't let anyone come between us. 
I feel there's at least a little bit of honesty in the way Odo's saying that. First of all, Odo obviously does not have family. He has someone close to family who'll be meeting in just a few episodes, actually. But that's it, right? So you get the idea that anyone who is really close to Odo is part of that, you know, adopted group. You know, this is my close friend kind of a thing. So yeah, I could believe Odo would be very, very loyal. But the second thing, and this amuses me as well, is that Odo, there's like this subtle implication that Odo legitimately has that loyalty to Quark. Whether that's true or not, who knows? We'll have to find out over the course of the series. But it's a nice little touch that he's at least thinking in that direction. So, I don't have a lot to say over the next, like, 20 minutes of footage. Because then there's some good stuff. Like I said, there's always the background reveal. That's awesome, the way Livingston does that. Uh, at the 32-minute and 5-second mark, there's this mention of some organization, a multinational power thing, or excuse me, multi-system power in the Gamma Quadrant. Um, and then and then we have we reach the final finale, where, you know, Quark is like, here, take the Latinum. Willingly giving her ten bars of latinum, just basically just because. <laughs> I like that. That's very quark. And then she goes in to confront them. Now, one of the things I like about that is Pell is obviously someone who is oppressed. Let's just say that as bluntly as we can. Regardless of gender, regardless of species, regardless of real-life allegory, this individual in this fictional situation is clearly oppressed. Now, she's kind of gotten used to that. But when you have to deal with crap of a particular type every day, every now and again, it just gets to be a little bit too much. It's, I like to mentally think of it as a, a vat of putting up with this, right? And it just kind of slowly fills up. And every time it gets to full, it's just... just the... Now, sometimes we have ways to more politely or more controlledly vent and then empty back out. Okay, I can deal with more crap now. I bet a lot of you know what I mean by that. In fact, I bet all of you know what I mean by that. Because you're watching me talk about Star Trek. Not everyone really remembers this now, in 2018, but once upon a time, liking Star Trek meant you were ostracized. It meant you were one of those weirdos, or those freaks, or those nerds, or those geeks. Something that's so normal nowadays used to be this big social faux pas. And I bet plenty of other you out there have some other thing about you that you just kind of have to deal with on a daily basis, right? There's no shame in that. And so, every now and again, we got a vent. And so what I see here is Pell having reached this critical point. And so she's just got a rant about this. This is the one stupid thing she does in the entire episode. But it makes perfect sense. Not for love, but because she's sick of this crap. Because note the construction of events. That final scene is actually brilliant in how it is portrayed. Everything about it is basically perfect. She goes in, and she's like, Hi, Zek. And so first she provokes him to say what she wants him to say, which of course he does. And then she flings her lobes at him because she's pissed at this whole situation. Of course she is. Why wouldn't she be? And then Zek says, you are ruined, Quark. And, and Pell immediately, that's probably when her brain just reignites. And it's like, oh, oh, God, no, Quark has nothing to do with this. Quark didn't know. None of her ire was at Quark. None of it. She was just pissed at the situation and Zek. And let's be honest, Zek is an excellent example of the situation. Just funny for anybody who's seen this show before. And so, you know, we're looking at it like, huh, okay. 
then she immediately tries to defend Quark, and Zek's like, nah, 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 he's screwed. And then Quark tries to defend himself, and Zek says, nah, you're screwed. And you are gone. You're going to rot in prison forever. And Quark's like, I'm sorry, no. And notice that Quark instantly and without hesitation goes to bat for Pell against Zek, the leader of the entire Ferengi alliance. Once again, excellent directing and acting throughout the entire episode, Quark has consistently portrayed as someone who is basically a toady, bowing and scraping before Zek in every scene except this one. So even if you've never seen Zek before, never seen Quark before, never seen the Ferengi before, never seen DS9 before, or never even seen Star Trek before, you get that this is Quark standing up at, because he really genuinely gives a damn in this case. And there's a lot of power in that moment. So Quark immediately goes to bat for her and immediately talks and dances around Zek. Because, you see, Zek is good at long-term planning. But he couldn't do speed chess. Speed chess is different. Speed chess is all about adaptability and improvisation. You don't plan out ahead, not unless you're really, really good at it. You plan out for what's going to come next and how you're going to react to that and what's after that and occasionally past that. But you need to be very quick on your feet to do speed chess. And that's Quark. And that's the way, that's one of the things I really love about this episode, is that it really highlights the significant difference between Quark and Zek. Quark may not have the lobes for some kind of big, massive industrial empire. I know, STO. But what he does have is the ability to talk and maneuver his way out of basically any situation because he's really, really good at that. So he outmaneuvers Zek, and Zek's like, all right, you win. It's going to cost you, but you win. And no, Quark doesn't take it back. He's like, no, done. Get out of my room. And, and Zek's the one who leaves. Good stuff. I like it. An excellent Quark episode and an excellent DS9 episode. And I'll see you in just a few moments because I want to bring down the, the spoiler box, okay? Spoiler box. Do I have a spoiler box? I've only just, like, recently started using this whole post-episode spoiler. I'm going to spoil the rest of the show here, guys. So for those of you who are watching the show with me, or who are seeing this show for the first time, this would be your, your chance to hit stop. Okay? Spoilers. The Dominion is name-dropped in this episode for the very first time. At the uh, 32 minutes and 5 second mark. And... What I love about this, and I'll actually talk about the Dominion more later, but what I love about this is they had no idea what the Dominion was at this point in time. They knew they wanted something. They knew they wanted some kind of significant force. And this is one of the things I like about this. You know, Voyager was going to be moving, so they weren't going to have a recurring feature. And TNG never really went into that kind of recurring uh, antagonist kind of a role. They wanted a recurring antagonist. They wanted a recurring enemy force for them to contest with. And having it be in the Gamma Quadrant made perfect sense to them. But they had no idea what to do with it yet. All they had was a name. Dominion. And we'll talk about them later when they actually start to show up. I'll be pointing out as they mention and name drop the Dominion as we go through. Because they were still working this out. This is another bit of the whole DS9's approach to storytelling in direct contrast to Babylon 5. 
Babylon 5 was fully front-loaded. He knew all the stuff. He knew what the shadows were from the beginning, right? He knew all that stuff. DS9 is back-loaded. The Dominion were just invented in Season 2. Remember, they're trying to find themselves. I've pointed this out several times in Season 2. And the Dominion, now that they've been name-dropped, still hasn't been constructed yet. Again, I'll talk about them much, much more uh, in the Season 2 finale. But for now, I'll see you guys next time. For real this time.